0: Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented brings industrial conversations that matter, serving up the most relevant conversations on industrial tech. And our vision is a world where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 78 of the podcast, the topic is life science manufacturing system. Our guest is Gilad Langer, industry practice lead at TULIP. In this conversation, we talk about the evolution, the experiences, the challenges, and the future opportunities of life science manufacturing systems. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, for engineers, and for shop floor operators, hosted by futurist Tron Arneunheim and presented by Tulip. Gilad, how are you today? Very
1: good, thank you. What about yourself, Tron?
0: I'm doing great, actually. We could take this in, in Scandinavian languages, but the, the audience would be somewhat more limited,
1: I guess. Yeah, I'm probably the only, the only Israeli Dane that you've ever interviewed.
0: I think so. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but it, it would seem like that. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought we would uh, spend some time on, on you. You've, you've got a really interesting and wide background. You're not staying put in one place very much, Glad, huh?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm going west and south. That's kind of my goal, towards the equator.
0: (laughs) So you spent a bunch of time in Denmark, got yourself a PhD from the Technical University, and then I think you taught there for a little while, but you were also in military training in some country. You've been a professor. You got yourself tangled in manufacturing somehow, I guess on the software side. And now you're specifically focusing on on the life science angle of those things. Am I butchering your background, or is this uh, kind of the way it happened?
1: Yeah, it is, more or less. I actually started as a mechanical engineer, and I did an internship in a uh, big ship engine manufacturer. It's called and Wayne, part of MAN, the, the German conglomerate. And, you know, I'm, I'm a gearhead. I, I'm a mechanical engineer, gearhead, like motors and cars and stuff like that. And Then I realized that mechanical engineers sit in front of a... Uh, CAD screen all day. The guy I was working with was designing the fuel pump for this motor for 20 years. And I said, "Mm, I don't know that's what I want to do. And so from there shifted a bit into different things and ended up being both, you know, mechanical production engineering, process engineering, and a bit of software engineering, which really is kind of all the, the engineering disciplines that you need to be proficient in what was once then, or what was called computer integrated manufacturing. And actually the area that I had a curriculum in the university, so I was uh, teaching that at the Technical University of Denmark. Well, I mean, you
0: speak as if this is something uh, a lot of people have done, but this is a very unique background. And these days, the scarcity of people with even half that background, I mean, this... It's not uncomplicated. You could be a software engineer, fine, but have you ever tried to work on a mechanical system? No, or, or vice versa, right? You, you're a mechanical engineer all your life and you work on all kinds of production type technologies and then suddenly the digital age uh, you know, comes at you. Is it, it's maybe a dumb question, but is it easier to come from the IT side to my manufacturing or, or to come from manufacturing to IT or is it sort of not, not even a relevant question?
1: I would say as uh, you know in modern day i think everybody has a hand in software it's becoming more common that you see any kind of engineering discipline also have some level of software experience back in the 90s that was not the case and it was kind of unique to combine the different disciplines but it it, there was a few universities in the world that that had the curriculum around that some of them in the us a few in europe so it was kind of a, a select few that really had that background i think it's becoming a bit more common nowadays, but you you can argue that any of the disciplines is a good starting point, production or quality, uh, mechanical engineering. You need to know quite a lot in all the different disciplines. So it depends really uh, where where you're coming from.
0: Well, you and I have had some discussions about this because, you know, I've been immersed in this, trying to understand these sets of domains. Um, What would you say to someone who is in industry and is trying to get a grasp of the, of the whole domain. I mean, surely they're not going to take your path. That would be 20 years, right? What is the, the quick way in here?
1: You know, I, I think it's the curiosity of how it all works together. I think the passion has to be around understanding of how uh, manufacturing operations work, so how a plant works. It's not a very glorious type of job, right? Because plants, they need to be optimal. You know, I always joke about different. When you go to manufacturing to plant leads or plant, you know, VPs of manufacturing, they're driving to work with the latest Tesla, has have all the gadgets going to the office, and then you come to them and say, "Why did you try this digital technology?" And they go, "No, we're we're staying where we are because they don't get measured on innovation. they getting they get measured about products out the door, and that brings risk averseness and also this this notion of just you know if it works and it's optimal." We want to try and improve it, but not at any cost. So innovation is not something that they like because it's it's too risky for them.
0: Well, but you said it's not a glorious experience. There, There is a little bit of rhetoric on this idea of factory of the future, and there obviously are new factories uh, that are trying to integrate these things from the get-go. But would you say that this whole idea that manufacturing is changing and can be exciting, is, is there a sense in which... This is going to change anytime soon, or do you think even though there is a fairly high potential for these integrations of it and and manufacturing uh, sort of operational technologies that it's hard to inspire I guess you, what you're saying the old guard or, or or is it actually more the structure of the plants that's stopping people so you know the typical brown fields is not just part of the culture but it's actually the the plant itself and what it's asked to to do is is just not set up for the kind of rapid evolution that we see in, in software
1: yeah so i think it's you have to look at what drives this right so th- we call it the fourth industrial revolution and the premise of this revolution is that if you don't change you're not going to get these increased productivity gains that it promises and so all the revolutions before that is it was about order of magnitude productivity gains that come from introducing new technology Right. And there's so much hype around it and, you know, the World Economic Forum, and it's everywhere in the media. And and it's really not about the technology. The, the executives in these companies are looking and saying, if we don't transform, we'll be left behind or we won't, won't get our productivity gains. And there is no plant manager anywhere in the world that is going to say no to order of magnitude productivity gain. So with that comes obviously the openness to try new things, and that's kind of what's driving this change. The technology is the enabler but the openness for change comes from the fact that people are realizing that it is truly a revolution and it is really happening you know if you didn't adopt the steam engine you cease to exist if you didn't adopt electricity your company went out of business right and if you didn't automate when the automation came around it didn't. and the big momentum right now is i think that we're past the point where people are thinking it's a fad it's a buzzword it's i think it's established now that this is really happening and so now you're getting around to these companies who are saying okay we can't just stay behind. We need to do something. Now, their interpretation of doing something, that's a whole other story that we can talk about at length, right? But there is that openness right now. Well, to
0: that point, you speak about factories, but there is a distinct difference in um, culture and, and, and certainly also operational practices between Manufacturing factories in sort of a traditional industrial sense, and, and the life science domain. Can you address a little bit how you you actually entered that domain, but also what, what you immediately started seeing as as the kind of differences?
1: Yeah, you know the reason we went to life sciences is just kind of a twist in terms of one's career, right? So I I went to work for a company called Camstar that has since been acquired by Siemens that had a core vertical around medical device. So that was kind of the first time. I entered the medical device space and and, and started working there, and then afterwards I went to work for a company called NNE, which was owned wholly by a company called Novo Nordisk, which is one of the uh, a very big pharmaceutical company, and so it kind of dragged me deeper and deeper into life science. And since then, with that, I helped so many companies in the life sciences space that that has become my kind of my expertise. But you know, I'm still a gearhead, and you know, I still if you ask me, what is the you know what are the most interesting plants that I go visit, right? So I spent nearly 12 hours a day, sometimes even 16 hours a day, is for nearly a year in a Caterpillar engine manufacturing plant, and I remember that as a great experience but much more interesting than you know some of the uh, novel uh, therapies that I've been helping companies produce, right? You know, just the other day, one of our customers, uh, a Tulip Zero motorcycles, here in the Bay Area, I'd go there any day. Uh, just to watch the motorcycles. <laughs> much more. Tell me what the fascination
0: is, first of all, with these true factories, because I hear this so much and and I have some of it, too. But I would just want to there's different reasons I think people have for wanting to see this industrial production and just feeling part of it. What is it for you?
1: It's the the mechanics that goes into building a product. Right. You know, I, I grew up in a farm in Israel. You know obsession with tractors and machinery and how all works together you know it's these hollywood movies where instead of computers they have these machines they're kind of sometimes silly movies but you know it's these machines and gears interlocking and the oil and the gas and the combustion and that's what make my juices flow uh you know it's what i like and when you go into a factory you know you see a robot taking something and putting it into a lathe and that lathe is chipping away at things and things are flying and oil is is spreading and you just for me that's art you know my i'm the only more technical person in the house everybody else are you know art lovers and uh, theater and uh, and what have you right for me that is art if, if you see how a milling machine is able to produce you know whatever gear it is you know and what it takes to do that and it chips away at the, at the metal you know for me that's art
0: that's interesting
1: go back to life sciences that's kind of the thing that one of the frustrating things about life sciences is you don't have that mechanics. It's something in a in a in a big pressure cooker, if you will, soup cooking in a pressure cooker that is worth billions of dollars and saves lives. You know that in itself is novel and very very interesting. But there's no mechanics to it, right? You can't really see what's going on.
0: But the chemistry of it doesn't fascinate you the same way. Not even as much. <laughs> not as yeah. much.
1: I still find it very intriguing, very interesting. I think some of the stuff that's going on in cell and gene therapy, where you know, it's also back to the mechanics. This is a little trivial story, but if you take a look at some of the concepts around how they put the RNA into the cell, so they have to inject the cell with RNA, right? The whole mRNA and the COVID vaccine, right? I won't go into the the specifics of it, but basically what they do is they zap the cell with a bit of electricity and and then the cell then expands. And when it goes back in, it sucks that RNA or the fluid with the RNA into it. So that's a little mechanically thing that happens in the cell and gene therapy that I think enjoyed understanding. Talk
0: to me then about life science and, and the manufacturing systems that they had been accustomed to, because I, I guess it's sort of different from the industrial factories in that, all right, fine. So there wasn't a lot of innovation pressure, I guess, traditionally in, in, in these factories either, but then you know came Industry 4.0 along with some promise. And then, you know, arguably the story there is, of course, mixed, right? It's, it's not just technology, like you said, and it's, it's been hard. But in, in life science, I imagine it's a little bit different because the business model was so insulated from all of these changes and, and there was just so much money to be had. Is that why the so-called Pharma 4.0, which let's get to that, why that really took longer, and and where are we now with that? Is is it really kicking off, or would you say we are in the absolute? I mean, in the U.S. Uh, metaphor, in the first innings, or or you know, really the beginning of life science kind of digital integration.
1: So the life sciences is bigger than just kind of one vertical, right? There's there's a number of sub verticals that is important to understand. Yep. So there is let's just call it large molecule versus small molecule. Small molecule, what we call pharma, and then there's the large molecule which we call biotech. In pharma, think about most most of what you know as pharmaceutical products. The uh, the tablets, by the way, just a little in the industry, you don't call them pills; you call them tablets. Just so you know, it's one of one of those things in the lingo. But the tablets, which are some level of chemical uh, uh, formulation, that is the medicine. The profit margins on in that industry are much less than the biotech industry. An order of magnitude difference. They are adopting technology at very very different rates. Because in pharma, there's starting to be competitive pressures, uh, generic manufacturers and manufacturing all over the world. They are starting to behave much more like traditional manufacturers. So they are interested in optimization and using technology to gain productivity. And they are actually adopting digital technologies at a much faster rate than the biotechs. The biotechs, unfortunately, are still kind of uh, big, fat and happy where they are and they have a lot of money. So they are not as willing to take some of the risks of these new technologies, but are going towards the more traditional technologies. And you also have to understand that, you know, it's an industry that is pretty young. So biotech is pretty young. It's really just th- 30 to 40 years old. And the innovation of technology in the biotech is in the chemistry, biochemistry. It's not in man- Most of these people don't know much about manufacturing. They know a lot about how they make the therapy or the, the drug that is. So, ter- so manufacturing for them is kind of a new thing. It's very similar to what happened in the semiconductor industry pre-Y2K. Semiconductor industry, you know, before that, making a lot of money for them to look at logistics of production and manufacturing, they didn't pay much attention to it. They even invented some of it themselves. Then came Y2K and they had to transform. So if you take a look at the semiconductor industry within 10 years, has transformed to some of the most highly automated and highly lean industry in the world. And if, you, if there's a parallels in the life sciences manufacturing, specifically biotech, in that it's only now that they're starting to see pressures, competitive pressures, but it's not a big event like Y2K was, where the, the market dropped and you know they had to reinvent themselves. So it, it'll take much longer in the, on the biotech side, but I think with time uh, it will come. I think what's going on the biotech side, that revolution is going towards smaller cell and gene therapy is one is, a, is manufacturing of Therapies that are unique for a person, so it's called personalized medicine. So imagine if I'm making a therapy just for you, I don't need to make a you know 20,000 liters of it. I just need to make very small batches. And a lot of the biotech industry is kind of moving into producing the drugs in smaller, kind of automated factories closer to the patient. So if you have things called mini bioreactors. We take a 20,000 liter bioreactor, and you can just do it in a, a very, very small if you will, array of bioreactors. So that changes a bit of the logistics around how they manufacture and forces them to start looking at digital technologies as well. But that will take much longer than the traditional pharma. Hmm.
0: It's super interesting what you're saying. So then, uh, you know, commercially, do you think that they are diverging in a, in a certain sense uh, because of this? These two, you know, biotech and pharma, you know, in, in terms of the entire platforms, will start to look quite different.
1: Yeah, so I think it will lead with pharma. So the pharma, even if you take bigger companies that have both small and large molecule type of products.
0: Yeah, that was my confusion because many of them. I mean, certainly to the uninitiated, it looks like it's. If in the large companies, it's mostly the same because many of them can't afford to choose, or they have, through history, so many business units that they're certainly doing both in some fashion.
1: Yeah, yeah. If you have a, uh, you know, one of the you know top ten pharmaceutical companies in the world, they have a whole you know, portfolio of products, everything from consumer over-the-counter uh, medicine, Advil and the you know, the ibuprofen and all that, antibiotics, and then they have specialty medicine, and then they have biotech and even cell and gene therapy. So they have a diversified portfolio. If you take a look at where the interest there is from a digital manufacturing perspective and industry 4.0 or pharma 4.0, they lead us always towards the pharma business because the profit margins are lower, they need more optimum, they need more productivity there. So we'll go there first, and then we also will go to cell and gene therapy, and that is because it's so new. So what they're seeing is, in the traditional biotech, they have a lot of money, so they have money to spend on the the traditional industry 3.0 monolithic application, and they spend a lot of money on that there, and they have quite a high level of sophistication, some to the extent where you know everything is is is, is digitized. Again, I call it not digitized, but electronic or in electronic form. In the cell and gene therapy, the process is so different that they don't know what to do and the traditional systems don't fit. So that's where they take us there as well, because, okay, it's new and we can try that, that there as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So it will come there, but then obviously if there's if they can see productivity gains and they see success, it will move into the biotech at some point as well.
0: Could you speak to me a little bit on the system level? Uh, what sorts of systems is life science in these sort of two verticals, I guess? Uh, what, what systems are they using? How they largely... In the beginning, adopted traditional industrial factory manufacturing systems, or th- did they even start branching out earlier and, and request their own their own systems? I'm imagining that there's a little bit of both, right?
1: Yeah. So, what's important in in life sciences is the batch record slash device record, right? That's the the whole premise of putting any kind of electronic system in this, because you need to. To uh, explain it kind of for entirety, when you produce a drug, uh, you have this regulation that states that you have to be able to show evidence of how you created that drug. You basically go to the FDA and say, "Here is how I manufacture this drug in this site." It goes all the way down to which parameters I set on the machines, which quality parameters parameter the checks everything. It's it's documented to the nth degree, and then you have when you run your production, you have to show evidence that you know if a parameter was between you know one point one and one point two, that it truly was between one point one and one point two in the drug. And you cannot release the drug to market without you know showing or not having that evidence. So that lent itself to putting digital systems or electronic systems in to help capture that information. It's called electronic batch records or electronic device history records. And that has been the focus of most of the life sciences is to basically come with uh, you know an electronic form of paper records that they are required by regulation or by law to have. These systems did not come from other industries. They were actually invented for uh, the life sciences industry. Initially, they were called paper on glass systems. So you know, think of you're taking the paper and putting. You know, if you're maybe old enough to to know what an uh, overhead projector is, you know, yes. you have overhead So you put your paper, you put the slide on top of it, and you kind of draw, you know, you you write what the the value is. That's called a a paper-on-glass system. So uh, that's where it started, and they got more and more sophistication from there. You know, with time, other software suppliers try to get into the market. But if you take a look at the core systems that are in life sciences today, most of them started as paper-on-glass-type systems. And they just became monolithic and essentially they, you know, they've introduced the notion of an ISA 88 or a recipe model that allows you to structure master data in different forms and become more flexible, but that is really where, you know, kind of bottom line where they came from.
0: So then fast forward to to today, what's happening if you, maybe you can uh, comment on this idea of pharma 4.0, which I guess ties into what you earlier said about industry 4.0, I imagine it's not an, you know, a one-to-one blueprint, but it is some formulation within the industry where I'm, I'm guessing leaders got together and said, well, what does it mean for us? Uh, can you tell me about how this term even even started and what, what, what it actually is and, and does today?
1: So Pharma 4.0 is, so it comes out of the ISP. ISP is the International Society of Pharmaceutical Engineers, a very influential uh, organization within the life sciences. It has a uh, long history uh, working very tightly with regulators and, and have come up with uh, concepts such as GAMP, which is Good Automation Manufacturing Practice, and many of the guidance that are around there. And basically, the industry runs on their best practices. So that's kind of the, the the organization. They decided to create a working group to understand how Industry 4.0 fits into the pharma world, and they call it Pharma 4.0. And they came up with an operate. It's called an operating model. It is uh, has four quadrants in it. But if you take a look at those four quadrants, you notice that a lot of it is human centric. So it's culture, you know, the workforce, resources, all that is, is about humans. So it's a representation that it's not only about technology, but how humans use technology. And they have a lot of, uh, you know, the, to that ties, uh, there's, there's quite a number of initiatives. It's not, you know, it's a working group. It, there's a lot of guidances and a lot of great ideas, but hasn't been completely formalized. You know, Industry 4.0 is also pretty new. But reflecting on that, you know, in terms of what I said before, in terms of the systems that are out there, I think everybody's realizing in the industry that the monolithic applications are, you know, they're not the ones who are going to give you that productivity gains. First of all, they're very expensive to put in, very expensive to maintain. That aside, when you work with such a system, they're all about compliance. So the operator serves the system with information because he has to, because per regulation, I need to tell the systems that I just capture the value and the value is 3.5. Instead of writing on a paper and writing a new it in glass, so the, the system were built not with the operator in mind, they were built with compliance in mind to capture that information. And so we, you know in order to get productivity, you have to turn it on the head and that's kind of what what we're doing. saying so, okay, how can we make the human more productive? He is working in a plant and producing drug. We don't need to stop him and say, hey, wait a second, what was the value in that measurement? We can maybe take that measurement ourselves. And instead of having him enter the value, prompt him that something is wrong, you know, and do all of that in a, in a, in a much simpler way. Right. And I think we're gaining a, a lot of momentum uh, in the industry. People are seeing how fast and how quick you can get things done and also serve the operators. And so I think Tulip is, is becoming, in fact, an example of how Pharma 4.0 can be implemented. We are just in the beginning of it, but I think we're starting to, to see some people with eyes wide open saying, wow, this is pretty incredible. So let's
0: go back to what you said
1: about this
0: idea of life science, well, well, one splitting up, but I wanted to figure out you know, there's a long chain, I guess, of, of of events that has to happen in order to get a, a product uh, to, to market. A lot of these digital innovations, I guess, have been, that, we, that you were talking about, have been in the manufacturing sort of plant or in the factory side. How does that all tie together? I mean, maybe this is mostly relevant for the biotech industry where biomanufacturing, right, and the personalized stuff. But, but in both of them, I mean, in my head, there's sort of the R&D process. And, and there are some companies trying to kind of digitize that as well, and you know, putting the lab on online. And then you have sort of the, the the production facilities, I guess, manufacturing of of the tablets that you talked about. But then there's an also a supply chain challenge, you know, certainly in the big production. Are there systems now developed that can handle all of these, or are we still in a situation where, because you know, some of it is just mandated, so that obviously is only for the mandated part? The systems only work for those particular use cases. What about those larger problems? Like If you are sitting at the top of one of these large companies and you say, well, my entire business has you know, a thousand problems, what is the system for me? How are they approaching that?
1: Yeah. So as usual, manufacturing is the last one to get any kind of digital innovation. So the big pharmaceutical companies, if you ask them what, what kind of what they are, they invent drugs. They don't manufacture drugs. Manufacturing is the is the black sheep. They will, you know. I think I I once heard from an executive at uh, one of the big pharma companies that if they could, they wouldn't manufacture anything. They would just invent it and let other people manufacture it. So digital innovation and the pharma space has been going on for quite a while. They're using very sophisticated methods around the R and D. You know, they have systems that can using AI and ML take a look at the data from clinical trials and be able to give you indication of what's the efficacy of the drug and different things. So they've been doing it, you know, with with big data and all this. If you take a look at what AWS does in life sciences, majority of their focus is in R&D. And they've been doing that for a while. On the supply chain, again, getting the drugs to market, super important. And there's a lot of digital technologies there. Manufacturing, that's the last, it's the last, uh, uh, you know, the, the last bastion we're very late to the game in manufacturing as compared to use of digital and openness even for digital technology so we have to kind of look other way, other places than manufacturing
0: so talk to me then about the future outlook uh, in the industry overall and in these two specific areas what do you see happening that is interesting i mean you're obviously part of a company that's you know has a big play you know in the space overall but what do you see generally in terms of how the industry is reacting to these things and and also the management of technology, because to your point early on here, you, you, you put it out, it's maybe industry 4.0. It doesn't exactly talk about the technology. The 4.0, I guess, is you know, a revolutionary aspect, but, but it is very infused with technology. And the whole point around it is very technological. You seem to be saying that there are a lot of cultural and other aspects. How is the uh, life science industry handling those more management type aspects?
1: You know, it's all about quick wins and where to focus on put technology. I think it's proven that you can get some gains very, very quickly. Let's take an example. You know, everybody, we talk about the batch record, but if you go to any any pharmaceutical plant, you know, apart from the production itself, there's paper everywhere because you need checklists to go into a room, to clean a room. Are you trained? You know, there's so many other things that are paper-based and there's quick wins to be had there. So, in fact, what we're seeing, you know, instead of touching – the batch record or the device record, uh, we tend to start saying, okay, let's go look at all the other paper on it. So, for example, for uh, Novo Nordisk, you know, they came to us and that that was kind of a a very interesting uh, way that it rolled out because, so I know Novo Nordisk very well. I worked for a company that was owned by Novo Nordisk. You know, I know kind of the thing. And, you know, I try to reach out to all the people I know, but we got an inbound from the part of Novo Nordisk that is responsible for documentation. So this is a group within Novo Nordisk that their role in life is to manage paper. Basically, all the paper checklists and everything in all the plants, they get collected into binders and they go to this department in Copenhagen, Denmark. You know, at the headquarters of Novo Nordisk, and they basically take a look at it, make sure it's correct, and they archive it. And they came to us and said, "We want to get rid of paper," and it, so it came from the source. It came from the you know the the, the, the people that are responsible for paper
0: i love the term for it right it's it's log books which something for me that's like when you're sailing you have a log book because you have to log where you're going otherwise you get in trouble yeah. with some authority at the harbor it, you know
1: it, yeah it's exactly the same thing these are log books that are prevalent in all uh, life sciences plants everywhere because you have to record and you need to have evidence of everything you do It's it, it can be uh, you a know, simple log book of uh uh, ambient temperatures and and conditions and environmental conditions, which are important for whatever the process, right? And so, you know, this is a group of people that come from the paper world. They know that they need to transform. And they took, you know, they took Tulip to heart and created these apps that are simple logbooks. And now this is going basically and being implemented in every single uh, NovoNotice site in the world. And it doesn't come from operations. It doesn't come from IT. It doesn't come from innovation. It comes From the department, the the record keeper—that's what it's called. I'm translating directly from Danish. The record keeping department.
0: So, so just a dumb question, but would this have helped me in my chemistry labs when I had to do my lab reports, or is it more simplistic than that? Describes all the steps, right? That they went through and the conditions around it.
1: Lab notebooks is is a different scenario. So, what you're talking about is it called a lab notebook. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So they're
0: somewhat distinct because the logbook yeah. is a much more simple, like it's right. very the basic information. And what I'm talking about, I guess, is the entire process that we were asked to write out, right? Yeah. What did you actually do?
1: There is a class of system that's called ELNs, electronic lab notebooks, that are also prime. They're also monolithic applications that again, and this is actually it's funny because in the labs the scientists they actually like more freedom than in manufacturing. So you know this but they again they get constrained they go, okay you want an electronic lab notebook here's a system and you shall use it that way you serve the system with information so again in these in these use cases we do find a lot of with a platform like tulip that there's a free you know the 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 uh, flexibility to let the scientists do whatever they want because they build it themselves
0: can i talk to me about this flexibility because I think many that have been exploring these systems, they are so. I imagine I'm 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 just sort of postulating here that they're so formed and shaped by the history of the systems that they have been told to use that when someone comes along and says, you know, it doesn't necessarily all have to be that way, and you try to introduce some some amount of flexibility. Talk talk to me about the sort of the the distinct nature of these sort of uh, app based systems where you know in some cases there's something that is mandated so but but even then you can do it in a in a little bit more liberal way within sort of governance limits but then of course there there is all of this paper on the side or there's use cases it would seem that that have never been regulated and they were always inefficient but they're not illegal yeah so do you address both of
1: those yeah exactly I mean, you know the the analogy can be a spreadsheet right so a spreadsheet is the ultimate democratization right if you think about it, it, it allows you a certain flexibility, but you can actually put constraint on it. Now, I usually ask, I say, what is the most common system in manufacturing that everybody uses? You know, if we, if we go across all industries, across all types of processes, what does manufacturing run on? And the answer is a spreadsheet, right? because it gives you that flexibility but still allows you to define and put rules to what is happening right and that is that that's the ultimate representation of democratization of technology right of digital technology Uh, and the lab scenario is 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 very good at that because they use a lot of spreadsheets if you take a look in the lab and when you give them a traditional eln it looks like a spreadsheet but it's much much more constrained, and you can't just go in and add tabs and add columns and do whatever you want you have to adhere to what it wants to do. So when you bring in a platform like a spreadsheet, and that's essentially what Tulip is bringing to industry, is the the ability to put some governance around that spreadsheet and define how it's used, as a SaaS platform again remember spreadsheet is a file right
0: yeah i was going to ask you to, to explain that because i think too many uh they would sort of assume that apps are very different from spreadsheets but of course what what happens is that you start with spreadsheets and you connect them and then but you 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 connect them to real things real operations it's not right. just numbers right
1: yeah exactly but, i mean it's be, there's been different attempts of doing these things you know if you take a look at the uh, the office Type of, of, of systems like like you know spreadsheets and document and presentations, so essentially what you're doing is you have a spreadsheet and you are allowing people to define what to put into that spreadsheet using a PowerPoint slide, if you will. So if you say here's a field I feel needs to go in that uh, this, but you can still go back to the spreadsheet and do your graphs and your charts and your analytics and, and all the other stuff that you go in there, or input it directly into a spreadsheet if that's what you want. Now we already have examples of. How such technology is easy to adopt and is used everywhere in, you know, take a look at any plant and you have, you know, you have the spreadsheet. If we can make it just as easy to create systems for manufacturing in the same way, that's where the adoption comes in. That's where the productivity comes in and everything is, everything is digitized that way.
0: It's a big paradox, isn't it? That, you know, supposedly all this advanced technology yet so much of the benefit is if you manage to simplify the interface. I mean, it's the lesson of Apple. It's the lesson of many, many things in this world is that yeah. there could be some complexity. Yes, very good. But how easy is it to use? Like, you know, exactly. some of this complexity, just you can't bring it to bear uh, unless you can have uh, people use it. Well, I mean, I would imagine in life science, that's enormously important because everyone, you know, has to standardize and do the same thing. Otherwise you're in trouble. You don't know what, you know, what, what happened and you're you're probably out of out of line. So... So where will this go then, uh, uh, Gilad, and you know, this whole digital transition, and you, you're saying it's, it's different in various parts of the life science industry, what shepherds this along? Is it just simply better interfaces, like a, a TULIP, more fluid interface will, will make a big difference, I, I would imagine? Is it regulatory control, or is it industry, like you said, with ISP, just sort of industry collaboration and ecosystems? What are the big drivers of, of the future here?
1: So I think we we need to go back to the productivity gain and the ease of use. So in my example with with Nova Nordisk, right, and we have plenty of example. It's the, at the speed and the ease by which you can get these systems in is just it's orders of magnitude, right? I mean, I've been doing this stuff for fair, as you as I explained for, for years. So the example here is you know why is it so adoptable? So my first project with Tulip was for a medical device manufacturer called Outset. They wanted a full MES. I realized we could do it with Tulip. And I think that you know the story. I think we've we've told the story many times. But within three to four months, they were able to put in the system, basically from scratch to a full blown uh, electronic device history record. And I'm just going to reflect on my own. So after the three months, and I saw the system and it was ready for validation. Yeah. I remember I was walking with the dog and going, something is not right. It's impossible to do it this fast. I was, yeah. you know, I said I, I was trying to find like it, it. It did not make sense in my mind that it was possible for a process engineer in Mexico to sit down for three months and come up with a, you know, typically MES systems, you have a group of five to six people with IT involved. Some of these people have years and years of experience on this. There's a project manager and it's, you know, it's just so complicated. So it just, you know, something in my brain said, like, I'm missing, you know, when you drive and you, you know, you forgot something at home, that's the feeling I had, but then it went on and we validated and we went on and they went live and it was true. We were able to do it in three months, and it is as simple. And I think that's the exemplification of this new digital technology. You know, we're solving the same problem, whether it be Industry 3.0 or 4.0. The manufacturer is trying to manufacture a device that comes out the door. There's no different from a logistical perspective if you take production control and all the stuff that we learned as engineers. The difference is that the system we can put in to help them can be done cheaper, faster, and it's catered directly and specifically for the for the operators. So it's not something they need to serve. And all of that, I think, is you know, once you, when people hear the story, it gains momentum. I think that same Nova Noise is the same thing. That the speed by which they were able to do something like that is orders of magnitude faster than any other system that they've ever considered in Nova orders
0: Well, it's fascinating to speak about these things in a time when, you know, some parts of the world coming out of a pandemic, others actually entering the pandemic in other parts of the world. Yeah. But we for sure will need an industry here that's—I uh, don't know what the word is—but you know, agile and and certainly ideally makes and produces you know life-changing therapies faster than the historical norm. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing so much about your experiences here. It's an interesting world. And I don't think it's easy to explain in 40 minutes. It's, uh, it's not something you, you know, everyone has 25 years to explore like you to get to this level, but it, but it would seem to me that hopefully the systems will get so simple that, you know, between 20 years and, and like you said, three months, there is a, a big gap there. And uh, for some companies, I'm assuming that the reality is a little bit in between. They need to spend a little bit more time. Maybe they're more complex, larger companies. Yeah. But for sure, it would seem that the promise is there thanks a lot you're welcome you have just listened to episode 78 of the augmented podcast with host Trond Arne the topic was life science manufacturing systems and our guest was gilad langer industry practice lead at tulip in this conversation we talked about the evolution the experiences the challenges and the future opportunities of life science manufacturing systems My takeaway is that life science is challenging the traditional paradigm of industrial technology. Biomanufacturing, in particular, poses challenges to many existing systems. The industry's own work with ISP's Pharma 4.0 initiative is bearing fruit. However, the dialogue with regulatory authorities still seems to be one where the industry is trying to educate governments once governments get it and are willing to adapt regulations slightly we might see even more rapid advances given the importance and scope of the new manufacturing techniques that are opening up and just await regulatory approval thanks for listening if you liked the show subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars and if you liked this episode you might also like episode 31 Pharma 4.0, with Michel Vuolo, who is quality practice lead at TULIP. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with TULIP, a connected frontline operations platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and the systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. TULIP is democratizing technology and is empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially where industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter, and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter. See you next time.